to the Bill Sunday School Podcast. Turn to Acts chapter 17, and I'm going to read this passage. Uh, it's kind of a random passage, but I'll talk about why I'm reading it in a second. Uh, maybe you've heard it before, but it's Acts chapter 17, verse 10. You can read it on the screen or find it in your Bibles. By the way, that this whole morning we're going to spend on the book of Acts. And so if you have your uh, finger in the book of Acts, we'll be flipping around and spending time there. So that's a good idea. So Acts chapter 17, verse 10 says, As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Everybody say Berea. Um, And on arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as so did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. And so I read this passage, maybe you've heard it before, just this one line about the Berean Jews, that they were eager to receive the message, and with great eagerness, they examined the scriptures every day to see what Paul was saying was true. And that's kind of my hope and my prayer for the Mill Sunday School, that we would be these people known for study and research and knowing the scriptures, examining the scriptures. And that's who we are as Mill Sunday Schoolers. And so with that, with this verse and the idea of examining the scriptures, let's pray before our God. Jesus, we do tell you that you are awesome and, and holy. And God, we seek to know you and, and who you are, that, that somehow we might understand more about Um, maybe who we are as Christians, that today's lesson about looking at the book of Acts and the Jews and the Romans in this ancient world, that somehow that might um, give us understanding for today and how you are calling us to be Christians in this world and this culture today. So God, we love you and we do praise you. Everybody screamed! Amen! Um, I used to, uh, a long time ago, this is a picture of the Wesley Foundation at Florida State Seminary. Anybody like Florida? Ooh, one guy, sweet, sweet, me too. Um, so I went to Florida a couple summers in a row, which, by the way, that's not the best time to go to Florida. But um, I went to Florida a couple summers in a row to, to visit a friend who was working as a pastor at the Methodist Student Union right on the campus of Florida State Seminary, uh, Florida State University, excuse me, uh, the Seminoles, uh, that's, that's their team there. And uh, I learned a lot about campus ministry and uh, evangelizing a campus and reaching out to a campus. And a lot of what I learned maybe has influence on me today, my job, my role today as a college and 20-somethings pastor of the mill. It may also play into a lot of what uh, Rob Sennett and I wrote in our book, The College Adventure Handbook, which, by the way, we get to talk about next Friday, not this Friday, this Friday's Desperation, next Friday at the Mill, Rob Stennett and I will be talking. But um, back to the, the Wesley Foundation, this Methodist Student Union, which was a, an awesome ministry on the campus of Florida State University. It was an on-fire church, uh, very affluent in evangelism, leading people to the Lord, uh, very Christ-centered, and every Wednesday they had this um, this, I guess, kind of outreach thing where they had uh, free food. And at a college campus, when you give out free food, you usually get a lot of people to come because college students love free food, right? I mean, that's probably why half of you are in here in the Mill Sunday School, because we feed you a free breakfast of Dale Panera bread and coffee. Um, but anyways, uh, college students love free food. So every Wednesday on this campus ministry, they would, we would have free food, uh, like, a, like a lunch served cafeteria style, and you'd eat in the church, and you'd just have conversations. It was very seeker-sensitive, like people that were, weren't Christians but were interested. We'd go out into the campus and just hand out flyers saying, totally free lunch at the Methodist Student Union. Just come on by and get a free lunch. And so in planning for this free lunch, we were like, we want it to be very seeker sensitive. We don't want it to be like, you listen to this one hour sermon, then you could eat your free lunch or do this and then eat your free lunch. It was just like, come and get a free lunch. And so we even talked about, let's not even pray before the lunch because we want it to be very seeker sensitive and we don't want to like evangelize people here. We could do that another time at our meetings, but this is just to get people in the door. So we talked about let's not even pray let's just make it very very seeker sensitive and then we realized so that's it might be more weird if we don't pray because people even non-christians would expect that we would pray before a meal so we decided to pray before a meal and we'd, we'd have very simple prayers we wouldn't call down the fire of god and repentance through the blood of the lamb or anything like that in our prayers it'd be very simple prayers i remember sometimes we do the superman prayer do you know the superman prayer anybody 
It's like to the theme of Superman. We thank you, God, for this food. We thank you, God, for these friends. Anybody? Nobody? You didn't learn that as a kid? Anyways, um, so we do that prayer. It's silly. Very secret sensitive. And so we got people to come to lunch that had no idea what, what the Bible was about or had never stepped foot in a church before. And I remember this one girl had come the last uh, free lunch, and then she was here uh, at this free lunch. It was a Wednesday many years ago. And she finally just said, okay, can I all ask you all a question? And we said, sure. Um, and she said, you know, I, I think I want to be saved. What does it mean to be saved? I, I want to be a real Christian. How do I do that? And we all just kind of like looked at her like, like, really? Like, seriously? Um, and so we told her what it meant to be a Christian, and she got saved. And then there she went on to, to uh, become a, a, a leader in that church. And it was just so cool. It reminds me in some ways of this video. Fish jumping in the boat. Still, the fish jumping in the boat. Anyways, uh, there's like a <laughs> in my head. I was like, fish jump literally like Christians coming to church to become Christians. And for some reason, the fish were jumping in the boat because this flashlight was being shown, and so the fish liked that or something. Anyways, random. That's how I think. But um, this girl. Going back to the main point, this girl asking the question, um, what does it mean to be a real Christian? I would like to become a real Christian. What does it mean to be saved? These, these ideas, this, this, this big idea of, okay, what does it really mean to be a Christian? We'll come back to this idea. We'll take that idea and study it as it, as it goes in the book of Acts because that's our topic for this month. And so before we do that, before we just jump into today's lesson, a few announcements. Um, the first one always is if you're new, we welcome you to the Bill Sunday School. Um, if you're, you're ever your first time here, it's, it's, if you've ever been to a church for your first time, it's either nerve-wracking or you, you're not sure what to do or to expect. But we are very glad that you're here. We're happy that you're here if you're visiting or uh, new to the Mill, the Mill Sunday School. And by the way, the Mill Sunday School is kind of a ministry of the Mill on Friday nights, which meets at 7 o'clock in the main building. That's our service, uh, worship, and a sermon. This is more uh, teaching. And so, um, yeah, so we got, if you're new, fill, you can fill out a card, too, on all the tables, a first-timer card. You can fill that out, bring it to me or the nice people as you leave in the back, and uh, you could do that. We'll give you uh, a CD of some of the worship music we recorded at the Mill a little while ago, and um, we also need the Mill Sunday School leaders. Um, every week, we, we, there's food and coffee and the setup in here, and we clean up, and uh, we would love it if you could help us. It involves coming early, staying maybe a little bit late to Sunday School, but if you're, if you're a regular and you've been coming for a while, it's a great way to get more involved and to help out, and so the process begins with picking up a leadership application, which is out there um, as you leave on that little table you can ask the nice people for a leadership application just look through it see what it requires and um fill it out so we need people to help so anyways that's all the announcements um yeah, there's no, also one more announcement, a third announcement, I guess, is there's no mill this Friday. It's Desperation, so it's part of a conference, but, so instead of the mill, we'll, we'll go to Desperation. It'll be in the main sanctuary, and it will be totally free. Starts at 7, just like the mill. There'll be lots of middle schoolers and high schoolers, so if you're like, man, the mill got really young last week. Yes, it, it was, that's because it's a huge conference, and lots of people will be visiting us, but it's free for us as the mill on Friday night. So, announcement time is over. Let's get into uh, the lesson. And so I have a discussion question for you, for you to uh, turn to some people around you or f- find a table to, to sit with uh, briefly to, to discuss a question. And hopefully it's a very easy question to discuss, but hopefully you don't just blow it off because it's too easy. The question is this, what does it mean to be a Christian? Some of the key points, and I'm sure, like, imagine yourself sitting um, at this lunch, the free food lunch, uh, on this college campus, and some girl that has never been into a church the week before says, you know, what's it mean to be a real Christian? I think I want to be one. I think I want to be saved. What would you tell this girl? What are the key points? What does it mean to be a Christian? List them out, and if you, if you get a list with the people you're discussing with, maybe if you have another section, second, uh, to put that list into some sort of definition, and it, what is the the definition 
of a Christian? Does, does your definition include those people that it should include? Does it draw a line and not include those people that it shouldn't include? Um, and so, so that's kind of the, the discussion question. Hopefully it's easy, but don't blow it off. I think there's, there's some depth into defining a big term into, into a small, concise definition. Okay, you know what you're supposed to do? Okay, ready, get set, discuss. All right, let's um, maybe talk as a, as a big group. We have uh, mics so that everyone can hear you. But uh, it doesn't have to be super profound. It could be very simple. But uh, would anyone mind reading uh, maybe a short list of what the things they came up with? Or if you got to a definition, um, to read that. Um, raise your hand, get the attention of the dudes with the mics, and then go ahead. Yes, thank you, Michelle. All right, um, we basically just said that um, Jesus came to die for us so that we have eternal life. He is 100% man, 100% God. He is the only way. He is the model for a perfect, sinless life. And the Bible is his true word. Awesome. Yeah, so believing in Jesus. Thank you so much for sharing. Believing in Jesus. Uh, she mentioned the Bible in there as, as the word of God. And then she mentioned uh, living life accordingly. Um, yeah, that's big points of what it means to be a Christian. Yes, thank you. Anybody else? <clears throat> Don't be shy. Don't make me say Bueller. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll say something yeah, since uh, I have the microphone already. Yeah, you do. <laughs> when, when can I not resist saying something when I have the microphone? <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's not like exactly key points. It's more like a lifestyle change. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not only belief in God and belief in Christ, because Satan does. Uh, that doesn't mean he's saved and doesn't mean he's a Christian. Yeah. Uh, so it goes beyond that. It's belief and the acceptance of Christ's atonement on the cross, and not just his death, but his resurrection, and more importantly, his ascension into heaven to serve at the right hand of God. Yeah. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. Yeah, so believing these very important doctrines, resurrection, ascension, uh, etc., that he was truly God and man. And then you, you mentioned this idea of a lifestyle, that it's not just believing it, because there's this verse that says, even the demons believe in God, but the, the, obviously the demons aren't saved or Christians, or I don't know how that works exactly, but they're the bad guys. And so it's more than just believing. It's actually carrying out a, a life of holiness and this idea if you truly believe, then you will truly carry out this idea of holiness. Um, I remember being in, in Pakistan a few years ago on a, on a mission trip and talking with this Pakistani guy who was just, we were talking about, uh, Americans and Christianity, and he just assumed, oh, all Americans are Christians, just like all Pakistanis are Muslim, because if you're in Pakistan, then you're in a Muslim nation, so you must be a Muslim. If you're uh, an American, you must be a Christian, because that's a Christian nation. To him, that was the definition of what a Christian was, that you were uh, from a Christian country. And I was like, no, 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 it has, it, it means something totally different than, than just being from a, a Christian country. You have to believe. And we went on and on, but he really didn't get it. We went he was arguing with me, going back and forth, and like, no, that's not what it means. And, and I remember also being in Utah just a few years ago. Um, I went to college in Utah and having conversations with Mormon friends. And we would go back and forth, and, and I would say, well, we're Christians and you're Mormons. And they'd be like, whoa. You know, I'm offended by what you just said because we're Christians as well. The, the Mormon would, you know, argue that they're Christians because they believe in Jesus. And, and I would say, oh, no, no, um, you know, we believe in the real Jesus. You believe in a different Jesus. And we'd, we'd go back and forth, and, he, and my, friends, my Mormon friends would be just looking at me like wide-eyed, thinking, no, it's the same Jesus. We believe in the same Bible. And I would be like, no, I'd argue with them and say, well, you know, your Jesus isn't God. And they'd say, yeah, that's true. Well, well our, the real Jesus, I would argue, is God. So we're real Christians. And then I, I think I began to realize that this term Christian can, can potentially mean too many different things to too many different people. It's, it's a word that we use as Americans that, that potentially means lots of different things to different people. And so I began maybe defining it more and saying, you know, I'm, I'm a Protestant evangelical born-again 
Christian. All these adjectives before the word Christian. But today we're going to answer this question of, of, of what does it mean to be a Christian. And as we are studying the book of Acts, we are going to look at this question specifically in terms of the first church. And so if you're, if you're taking notes, um, we're, we're looking at the first church. And I would uh, argue that the first church is potentially different than the early church. I'd say the first church is actually the, the church that was in the book of Acts, the first generation of people that lived with Jesus. And I would say that the early church is the next step after that, that maybe as around the year 100 AD, if I just had to throw out a number in guessing, to about 300-ish AD when Christianity was legalized. And so we're talking today about the book of Acts, what the events that happened there, and what it meant to be a Christian. Because kind of the thesis, this big idea today, is that Christians had to define what it meant to be a Christian. There was, there was nothing to compare them to. They were new. It was a new belief system in Jesus Christ, the one who had came. And so they had to define what it meant to be one of their members. And so if you look at the book of Acts, like we have been doing this month, and we did a few months ago as part one, this, this month as part two of the book of Acts, we find the stories of Peter and Paul going and sharing um, the, the message of Jesus and having to define what it meant to be a Christian to the early Jews and to the Romans. And we have this idea maybe in our heads that the early church was... This, this golden age of church history where everything was wonderful and perfect. And maybe you share this, uh, the verse uh, Acts 2, I think 42-ish, that says that all the Christians had everything in common and they lived in Jerusalem and they, they prayed every day and they, they broke bread every day. And this golden age of church history, and in some ways maybe it was a golden age. I mean, the people there had, had maybe seen the resurrected Lord himself or Jesus in the flesh before he died. And so in some ways it was this awesome uh, beginning stages of the early church. But it wasn't this golden age of church history in that it was perfect and everything was fine and everything was wonderful. No, as, as we'll see, the early church had their problems, and, and I'm going to argue today that one of the problems was that the early church had to define itself. They had to come to this conclusion of answering this question, who we are. And so there's this random verse that maybe some of you know. It, it's Acts 11.26, if you want to write that down. It's kind of a famous verse, or you could look at it later. And the last part of that verse, Acts 11.26, says the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Do you know that verse? Is anybody familiar with that? It's this random little verse that is in the book of Acts. It's Acts eleven twenty six, And here's a picture, uh, a map of, I guess, the Mediterranean. The arrow is pointing to where Antioch is. But it's this idea that um, that, that verse is coming at, at Acts chapter 11, that the Christians were first called Christians then. And that, 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 the idea that they weren't really called Christians in Jerusalem, but they were first called Christians way outside of where Christianity started, way north, um, 11 chapters into the book of Acts, we first find the Christians being called Christians. And, and we'll kind of talk about maybe, well, maybe what they were called before that was uh, a sect of Judaism called the Way. They were just called maybe a part of being Jewish. And here they are now being called Christians for the very first time. And I learned, surprisingly, that Christian does not mean and some of, the, some of you may be surprised by this because you've probably heard it a bunch, like I've heard it. I almost taught it today. And then I went to research it and found out that it's not true. But have you ever heard, raise your hand if you've heard, that Christian means little Christs? Have you heard that? It's a lie! Somebody made that up and has been told somebody else, and then somebody not researching it told somebody else. And so the idea that Christian means little Christ, I don't know what language Christian means little Christ in, maybe some language, but it's a myth. It's not true. So next time you hear somebody say, you know, oh, well, Christian, the name means little Christ. You can just kind of smile and know that that's not really true. It really means, uh, if you look at the Greek, and, and I did, and I researched it, Acts 11.26, the Greek word there is Christanos, um, which comes from one part Greek word, which means Christos, which means, of course, Christ, which is uh, a Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, which in the Hebrew word Messiah means anointed one. And so if you say Jesus is the Christ or Jesus Christ, Christ, by the way, isn't Jesus's or Jesus' last name. It's a title. 
Um, <laughs> I thought that as a kid. I was like, man, what a sweet last name. Anyways, it's not. It's a title. It's Jesus is the Christ. He, he is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. That's what that word means. And so uh, the Christos, it, that's the first part of Christanos, which we get the word Christian. Um, the first part means Christ or Messiah, anointed one. The second part is an a- actually an adjectival ending borrowed from Latin to note uh, belonging to or adhering to or ownership, like as in a slave or a servant ownership. So the word Christian literally means belonging to Christ or being Christ's servant or being Christ's slave. Um, the idea that it means little Christ's, Somebody made that up, and that rumor got spread around. And half of us in here have heard that. I don't know where it came from, but it doesn't mean little Christ. It means servant of Christ. So um, that's kind of a definition of what it means to be a Christian. Um, but the early church, uh, I'm going to go into this lecture now. If you're, if you're following along in the notes, that, that some of you probably got them when you came in, or uh, they're on the, some, there, I think there's a few on the tables. We're at this part right now where we're going to compare it to something else, and we're going to compare it to what an ancient Jew was. Um, what, is, what does it mean to be a Christian as compared to an ancient Jew? Because what I want to argue is that, that the Christians and the, and the first church really had to make this division between what it, was, what it meant to be a Christian as apart from a Jewish person. Because think about it this way. Jesus was Jewish, meaning he was uh, uh, in the race of being Jewish, and he followed the Jewish, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, the Torah, the law. He followed those things. He was Jewish. Uh, All of Jesus' disciples were Jewish. All the people Jesus talked to in Israel were, for the most part, Jewish. All the converts were Jewish. And so... Everyone, if everyone was, that was a Christian was formerly a Jew, then you would think that, oh, what it meant to be a Christian was, oh, someone who converts from Judaism. And so someone that followed the law, someone that had the, the scroll. And so, you know, we, we sometimes use books today, or some of us are even getting away from books and using Kindles and iPads to read. Well, the, in the ancient world, they had scrolls. That was the way in which they wrote on things. So here's a picture of a scroll of the Torah. And the Torah is the, the first five books of the Bible. The, another word for it is the Pentateuch. And that's where most of the law is, all these rules about what you're supposed to eat. Like you can't eat pork. Can you imagine? No bacon? How would you eat a junior bacon cheeseburger? I don't know. Um, but if you're Jewish still to this day, you can't because it says in the Old Testament, don't eat pork. Um, you can't eat lobster or shrimp. I mean, how are you supposed to go to Red Lobster for the shrimp festival if you can't even eat shrimp? So you'll never find a Jewish person at Red Lobster. Um, the way in which you prepare food um, has to be according to the Old Testament law and the Torah and um, all these foods. Um, circumcision was a big part of the Old Testament. Uh, celebrating the Sabbath. Um, um, all these rules and regulations in the Torah um, that, that you would hold to. And God actually gave them to the Jews. And so it's like, these are God's commandments. And so, in chapter 10 of the book of Acts, there is the story of Peter. And here's a clip art picture of the story. And the story goes something like this. If you want to read along, it's Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 11. Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 11, uh, and says, Peter saw. He saw heaven opened. So this is like a vision he's seeing in Acts chapter 10, verse 11. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. That's the clip art picture we're seeing now and contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds and a voice told him get up peter kill and eat (laughs) and and peter said verse 14 surely not lord peter replied i have never eaten anything impure or unclean and so peter a jew being uh uh I guess, in line with the teachings of the Torah, had never eaten any pork or lobster or anything that God calls unclean. And God actually calls it unclean and detestable. So Peter would say, no way, I would, I would never eat that, my Lord. And the voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And so Peter is astounded by this story. Imagine growing up his whole life as a little Jewish boy, never ever daring to eat anything detestable. God is now saying, um, do not call anything um, unclean that I have made clean. And Romans 14, 14 says, no food is, is unclean. 
unclean in and of itself. This idea that God is, is, is fulfilling the Old Testament law by Jesus. If you've ever wondered and, and read through the Old Testament, it's like, man, why don't we follow all these rules and laws? Well, part of the book of Acts is the story of how the church decided that those rules were part of an old way. And if you're now a Christian, or if you become a Christian, and a, if you're a Gentile, a non-Jew, you become a Christian, you no longer have to follow many of the old rules that were in the Old Testament, like the eating of things as we find in Acts chapter 10. Also, in this chapter, um, Peter goes to this guy's house. Um, maybe not this guy specifically, but um, he goes to Cornelius's house. Cornelius is a centurion. This guy is dressed up. Um, maybe, uh, for, maybe he went to like the Renaissance Festival or something. I don't know. Although the Renaissance, anyways, I don't know. The two different times. But he's dressed up like a Roman centurion. And uh, that's what maybe they looked like a long time ago. But anyways, Peter in chapter 10, right after seeing this sheet being let down, a voice saying, arise, Peter, kill and eat. He says, no way. And God says, yes, I've made food clean. He goes to this Gentile's house, Cornelius's house. He's a Roman. He's a centurion. And, and that in and of itself was a big deal because Jewish people were not supposed to go to unclean Gentiles' uh, houses and eat. But here Peter is with this new fresh vision that God is doing something new and fulfilling an Old Testament thing, goes into Cornelius' house and he speaks the word of the Lord and something amazing happens in this house. I'll read it. Acts chapter 10, verse 44 says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished. So the circumcised ones would be the Jewish ones um, because that's part of the Old Testament. Jewish law as well. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even, everybody say even, even on the Gentiles, these non-Jews, these non-circumcised people, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. So these Jewish people are astonished that the message of Christ, that God has opened up the doors even to the non-Jews. And here we are in 2011 with thousands of years of 2,000 years of church history to know that, of course, Christ has opened the doors to all believers. You don't have to be a Jew. You don't have to uh, get circumcised or not eat pork or not eat lobster or wash in a ceremonial way or celebrate the Jewish Sabbath to be a believer in the Christ, the Messiah. But you can, you can forfeit all of that because Christ fulfilled it. And so we think about the context of Scripture and our Bible. Um, here's a picture of a Bible, maybe somewhat like your Bible. And we think about the whole Old Testament. In, in, the, in Hebrew, it's called the Tanakh. The, from Genesis to Malachi, all these verses that talk about the way in which you're supposed to live, especially the Torah, the first five books, all these rules and laws. And the early church had to learn the difference between, okay, do, does a Gentile have to fulfill the Old Testament law and do all these rules? Or can they just believe in the Messiah who came in Jesus? And the early church in the book of Acts, we find them figuring out, um, I'll give you the quote, it's on your skillet, it's on the back, the sweet quote of the day by N.T. Wright. It's, it's, I'll read it for you, but you could probably read along because it's kind of like one of those word puzzle confusing things. And it says this, the early church had to painfully, uh, to learn painfully the difference between the differences that make a difference and the differences that don't make a difference. What? <laughs> I'll read it again. The early church, or the first church, had to learn painfully the difference between the differences that make a difference and the differences that don't make a difference. So the early church, they had to decide, oh, does circumcision, this, this act of um, cutting off the foreskin of the penis, did you know what that was? If you didn't know what it was, I have a video showing uh, what it is. Uh, so if you, have a, if you have a weak stomach, don't watch. Here's the video. Anyways, uh, here's, a, here's a picture of it. I blacked out the, uh, the, the penis of the baby because I didn't want you leaving here saying, yeah, Joe showed us a picture of a penis. Um, anyways, kind of rambling right now. Is my face turning red? Anyways, uh, for, for those of you that honestly didn't know what circumcision was, it's this 
promise given to Abraham in the Old Testament. You can read about it in the Bible. And it's God commands Abraham and his people to get circumcised if they are a part of those believing in Yahweh, the one and only true God. And then uh, Moses uh, commands it as well in this, this process of circumcising children on the eighth day, boys uh, removing the foreskin of the penis is somehow a part of God's commandment, somehow a part of, like in some way, the food being disgusting, like the pig and the, the lobster, somehow that's d- disgusting and, and unclean. In some ways, not having your foreskin removed would be disgusting and unclean before God. And so that's a part of the promise um, that is given in the Old Testament. And, and, and we just kind of look at that and laugh. We have 2,000 years of church history and knowing that you don't need to be circumcised or to follow the Old Testament specific laws in order to be saved. But if you want to turn there, you can you turn to Acts chapter 15 verse 1. And this this issue of circumcision was a really big deal um, because they're learning the difference. The early church is learning the difference between the differences that make a difference and the differences that don't make a difference. So, Acts chapter 15, verse 1 says, Certain people came from Judea to to Antioch and were teaching the believers this. Um, Can you imagine them teaching this? Um, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Imagine someone teaching that. We would just look at them and laugh because, you know, we have 2,000 years of church history and we have the book of Acts. We have the New Testament. We have commands from Peter and Paul and the disciples saying, of course, you don't need to be circumcised. And this bigger idea of following the Old Testament specific rules and regulations, we know that you don't have to do that in order to be saved. But it was a real deal dispute um, in the book of Acts in this first church. In Acts chapter 15, verse 2 said, this brought Paul and Barnabas into a sharp dispute and debate with them, those saying you have to be circumcised to be saved. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see what the apostles and elders uh, had to say about this question. And so they go to uh, first century Jerusalem. Here's a map of what that city could have looked like. And you imagine, if you read the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 15, it's called the Council of Jerusalem. There were some awesome people all in the same room. Peter, Paul was in the same room together. That's pretty cool. We have James. Uh, Barnabas was there. We have other disciples, maybe potentially the very disciples of Jesus, all in the same room um, talking about, okay, what does it really mean to be a Christian? Do we have to follow these old ways and regulations commanded by God in the Torah? Do we have to teach that to the Gentiles? Or if a Gentile, if a non-Jew like myself becomes a Christian, we don't have to then um, take on all these specific rules and regulations of the Old Testament. What, there's this debate going on. And so Acts chapter 15, verse 28 is kind of what they decide, the answer. And it says, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to not burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. So basically, all the Old Testament rules and regulations is going to be summed up in, in this one sentence. Uh, Acts 15 verse 29 says you're to abstain from and he lists different kinds of foods that i'm going to summarize as foods having any association with idolatry so you can't eat food that that has blood in it that's still living you can't eat food from a strangled animal as as, that had been sacrificed to the lord just avoid those types of foods and uh, avoid sexual immorality and verse uh, 29 says you will do well to avoid these things so he sums up the, the entire rules and regulations of the Old Testament saying, don't eat food that has associations with idolatry and abstain from sexual immorality. It reminds me in some ways of what Jesus did when he summed up the law in Matthew 22, verse 35. Uh, a person comes to Jesus, one of them, an expert of the law, tests him with this question, saying to Jesus, verse 36, Teacher, uh, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And so Jesus um, summarizes the whole law, the whole Torah, the prophets, the whole Tanakh, the, the whole Old Testament canon that we have and, and just says, Love God and love your neighbor. Jesus uh, summarizes it in the same way, uh, in a similar way, I should say, as the Council of Jerusalem saying, 
all these rules and regulations, here's what it really boils down to. You shouldn't eat meat uh, or food that's been associated with idolatry, and you should abstain from sexual immorality, which leads us to this idea of the Christ and how the Messiah fulfilled the Old Testament. Here's a crown representing the Messiah, the Anointed One. And if you uh, know any part of the Hebrew alphabet, uh, you know that those letters kind of spell out to say Messiah. And maybe you know that in Hebrew you read from right to left instead of left to right. That's the, the Hebrew word for Messiah. And, and this idea that Jesus came as a Jew to fulfill the Old Testament, to be the Messiah, to be the Anointed One that Isaiah speaks about, Ezekiel speaks about, that's prophesied about, that Jesus takes on this role of the Messiah. And yet the Jews, for the most part, rejected him. And so there's this verse in Acts chapter 4 where Peter is talking to the rulers of the Jewish people, the Sanhedrin, and Peter says, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, this is Acts chapter 4, verse 11, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And so Jesus, looking at the Jews, says, um, you rejected him. You, this, Jesus was the stone that you rejected, but he's the capstone, and, and we've turned him in to this cornerstone, this, this stone that is the most important stone that, that we will build on. And, and the Jewish nation um, rejected Jesus for the most part, and still today J- Jewish people would say, you know, if they're Jewish and they're not Christian, they would say they're still awaiting the Messiah. They're still awaiting this king who will come. And, and there's many prophecies in the Old Testament about this king, that the Messiah would be a king. And of course, Jesus, was he a king? Yes, a spiritual king, a king of the kingdom of heaven, but he wasn't an actual king. He was a poor carpenter that was executed by the Roman Empire. And so the, the Jews, we would, we would say, rejected him, but he became the cornerstone. And this idea that maybe they, maybe they were expecting or imagining the Messiah to be a certain way and have all these characteristics um, fulfilled, but God worked in a little bit of a different way. And Jesus was the king of heaven and earth, the king, the great king of the world, a humble servant. Um, which brings us to this just a side point, a side note this morning of this idea that God can work in ways that you don't expect. He, can, he, he always works in ways that are good and full of love and truth. But if you're expecting something specific, and if you have this imagination of, here's how God is going to work specifically, well, maybe he won't work in that way, but will you recognize him when he works, even if it isn't exactly how you thought he was going to work? Reminds me, in a way, uh, of some people that have been made fun of, um, and maybe rightly so, the people just a couple weeks ago who put out a bunch of bumper stickers that said... um, Judgment Day, May 21st, 2011. And of course, that day came and went, and they, they thought that they could know. And they, they even got the website, wecouldknow.com. And they said, here's how it's going to happen. Uh, at 7 o'clock, all around the world, in different time zones, there's going to be an earthquake, and the Christians are going to be taken from this earth. And that's how it's all going to go down. They, had, they imagined exactly what it was going to be like, and God obviously didn't work that way. And, um, <laughs> and so I imagine, like, what would have been really nice is if this website, which I went to the next day, had, like, some kind of apology on it and said, hey, listen, you know, I, we said that, you know, we can know for sure that an earthquake will happen at 7 o'clock, and, and then all around the world at 7 o'clock this earthquake will happen, and Christians will leave the earth. But instead, no apology. Instead, uh, Harold Camping said something like, uh, it was a spiritual judgment that happened. The world uh, will, will actually end October 21st, which was in some way a part of his plan, but not really. He, he gave very specific guidelines for how the world would end, and it didn't. And so he could have just apologized, you know, but he didn't. Um, he didn't, you know, it's easy for us to make fun of them because, you know, they predicted a very specific thing and it didn't happen, but whatever. And in some ways, it reminds me of a friend a long time ago. This is probably a more serious of a story, but a friend that liked a girl and believed, my friend um, in college, believed that God told him that he was going to marry this girl. And so they started dating, and for whatever reason, it didn't work out. And uh, she began dating other people. And he, for years, I think like two years, didn't date anyone else because he really believed that God was tell- or did tell him 
that this girl was going to be his wife. And so it was really weird. They, they still went to the same church, but all the friends had to kind of choose between, oh, are you his friend or are you her friend? Because they never hung out. And it was extremely awkward because he was still like under this impression that she was rebelling against the will of God by not dating him. And she was just like, yeah, God didn't tell me that you're going to be my husband. Um, and so um, it didn't work out. Um, and years down the road, um, uh, she married somebody else years down the road. He then married somebody else. And I, from what I understand, a phone call was made, uh, a restoration, a healing phone call, where this guy uh, called this girl years later and said, apologized and said, listen, I, I thought that God told me that we were going to be together, but I'm so sorry that maybe I spiritually abused you and, and said that God said this when maybe God didn't say that and things were weird between us for years and I destroyed that relationship and I, and so he just apologized for, for God not working exactly how he thought God was telling him that, that he was working. And so um, that, that's just kind of a side note today that, that what we imagine and how the specifics of how God works, we can sometimes get wrong. But will we understand that when God works, he is working and, and change what we imagined to be according to what he is actually doing? Anyways, side note. Back to what it means to be a Christian. We talked about this first church compared to the ancient Jews. Let's quickly talk about uh, what it meant to be a Christian as compared to an ancient Roman. And here's a map of Rome. As you can see, uh, if you could see from your seat, I know it's sometimes a little light, um, not the easiest thing to see, but here's a, a map of the Mediterranean. The red is all the area that was held under the Roman Empire. And so you can see it's a big area. It's like kind of like the known world back then, this huge, awesome empire. And these Christians were just a minority. These Christians were just a group of people saying that Jesus was their king, and which was so offensive, we talked about last week, because Caesar, the emperor, was the king. And here Jesus comes along saying, no, I'm the king. And he's like, you're not the king. You're just a poor carpenter who was executed by Rome. And, and Jesus, I'm the king. And the Christians believing in Jesus, saying his, he was the king, was an act of treason against Rome because Rome said the Caesar is king and this kingdom of, of Rome is bigger than any kingdom on the earth. And Jesus and the believers in Jesus would believe that no, Jesus' kingdom is bigger than any kingdom. He's the king of heaven and earth. And so the Romans hated them for that. And so that's kind of the Roman Empire against the Christians in that relationship. We talked a little bit, actually a lot about that last week. But um, I kind of want to compare the early Christians to the Romans who were in Rome. Because in some ways, you know, America is different than Americans. Um, and so we as Americans... You know, we're, we're not America. And so the Roman Empire wasn't the Romans. And so to quickly talk about the Romans um, and what they believed, this is uh, kind of uh, paintings and a building where cultic uh, Roman mystery religions or mystery cults were practiced. This idea that in ancient Rome, the, the Romans were very pagan, very into the Greek and the Roman gods and worshiping them, kind of picking a favorite god and worshiping that god and mixing, in a lot of ways, sensual pleasures with their religion. In a lot of ways, mixing um, sex and alcohol with their worship of a god. Mixing the food and the pleasure of eating food with the god that they were worshiping. And so, in some ways, making a sacrifice of an animal uh, to a god and then having a feast and eating that animal and sometimes doing gross weird we would say gross weird things like drinking the blood of the animal or strangling it and, and eating it while the heart's still beating really weird stuff we would say cultic pagan practices a lot of that was going on in ancient rome during the time of the first church and um the the disciples went to places like paul goes to corinth in acts chapter 18 here's a picture of ancient Corinthian uh, ruins in the background. I don't know if you can make that out, but there's uh, a, a, a large hill. It's called the Acrocorinth, and at the top of that hill was uh, a pagan a temple to the, the god Aphrodite, the goddess of 
Love, yeah, good. Um, and so at the top of this temple in ancient Corinth, when Paul goes there, he's speaking uh, to the Corinthians, and he writes, by the way, letters, First and Second Corinthians, to the churches in Corinth. But on this hill was this big temple to Aphrodite, and if you wanted to worship Aphrodite, you would go up there, and it's, it blows our mind that this would be a part of worship, but you would have sex with a temple prostitute in worshiping the God who, who is the God of the pagan God of love. And, and so these things happening all across the Roman Empire. Um, Paul goes to Ephesus in Acts 19. And he creates a stir because he says that basically Jesus is higher than their God. And they were worshiping Artemis, who's a female God of fertility and virginity. And she's often depicted with like millions of bosoms, which is just weird to think about. And so they're selling statues of Artemis, this female god with lots of bosoms. And, and, and Paul like uh, preaches against them, and it creates a riot because this Roman, Roman Empire and these people in Ephesus were so into their ancient gods and worshiping them and, and believing in them. And so to kind of to summarize, Christianity is radically different from these Roman pagan gods, Roman uh, cultic worships were mi- mixing pleasure and, and, and religion. Christianity said, no, there's self-restraint and avoiding sexual immorality and avoiding drunkenness as a part of honoring your God. And so how different a message uh, of that would be to this ancient Roman world. And so we come back to this question still, what does it mean to be a Christian in the ancient world? And, and we have some sources of, of some people, some Romans, writing about Christians in the early church of who they were. Let me give you an example. The, this guy's name is Pliny the Younger, and he wrote in 110 AD to the emperor Trajan. So this guy named Trajan, he's the emperor of Rome. Uh, Pliny the Younger is a magistrate, and he's writing a letter, and we have this letter, at least a copy of this letter, and that is a primary source. And by the way, as historians, um, they love primary sources because we could guess all day what the ancient Romans must have thought of the ancient Christians, but when we actually find it, we find a primary source of a letter actually being written, and we can read about a first century uh, Romans magistrate's opinion of Christians. We have this primary source that's pretty cool. And so I'll read it for you, just a small excerpt. And it says uh, this, that they, uh, that the Christians were accustomed to meet on a fixed day, uh, like we do, I guess. Uh, they were accustomed to meet before dawn, to sing responsively uh, a hymn. Uh, so they would sing back and forth, I guess. And they would sing a hymn to Christ as to God and bind themselves by an oath not to do some crime, but not to commit theft or 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 theft, or fraud, or adultery, nor falsify their trust, nor to refuse a return of trust when called upon to do so. And when this was over, this meeting was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again and to partake of food. And like, like in our minds, or at least in the ancient Roman mind, excuse me, uh, their food idolatry worship was very uh, mixed together. So he adds this sentence and says, um, they partook in food, um, but ordinary and innocent food. And so here, this picture of Christians meeting together, singing together, eating together, um, and, and making oaths to live according to Christ, not to commit adultery or crimes or theft, etc. And so we have this document of that's what the, that's what the ancient Romans thought of us. So we have another one from, uh, Galen, who was an ancient, a Roman surgeon, a doctor, and he writes this about Christians. Uh, Christians were known for their contempt of death, meaning they're not afraid to die. And likewise, their restraint in cohabitation, meaning they, they, they didn't sleep around. They didn't have a bunch of concubines, which to this ancient Roman world was like, you know, why are you doing that? Why, why not have lots of concubines and, and visit prostitutes? Why is this whole group of people, these Christians, not doing that? That's what they were known for, uh, not sleeping around, which, which is just awesome and which will lead into um, kind of what I'll say today and, and as we conclude about re-answering this question of what does it mean to be a Christian as compared to our culture today? And so I kind of want to, um, in some ways, bring this message home and give us some practicalities because 
learning about the Bible, studying it, isn't just for our mind. However, as Mill Sunday Schoolers and as a teacher of the Mill Sunday School, I would say that we need to love God with our mind, that research is important and knowledge is important and, and knowledge of true theology is very important. But if it just stays in our heads and doesn't move to our hearts, then it's, it's not the full picture. And so I think in comparing what it means to be a Christian to our culture today, I think it means a lot of saying no to uh, various things that so often our culture says yes to. This idea of saying no to sexual immorality um, is just maybe what Christians are known for. This, this idea of abstinence and this idea of waiting till marriage while our culture just looks at that and thinks we're crazy. And comes out, this, the movie uh, Steve Carell came out uh, quite a while ago with a movie called 30-Year-Old Virgin. Some of you probably saw that, but the whole idea is just making fun of someone. This ridiculous idea that someone can be 30 years old and still a virgin. And, and, and this idea that, uh, did you know the statistic for men who get married, their first marriage in America is 28. And so if you're actually waiting to get married, if the average is 28, then there's plenty of men getting married as 30-year-olds. And so we as Christians holding this idea of sexual, um, of avoiding sexual immorality and saying we, we want to be sexually pure um, and, and avoid what culture has to say to us is just so radically different. Radically different than the early Christians in their world. Radically different from who we are to our world and avoiding sexual immorality, avoiding drunkenness, avoiding sins that our culture just says is perfectly okay, avoiding uh, laziness. Here's a picture of a guy with a big belly with a remote. Um, and just that, that our culture says, sit on the couch and just listen, watch what we have to show you, no matter what it is. And as Christians, we, we can avoid that. We can, we can say that we need to live differently than our culture. We need to uh, abstain from addictions of, of, of different kinds, any kind. And we need to abstain from sexual immorality and, and live in such a way that, that maybe those around us will say awesome things uh, about us that, that say, yeah, Christians, they lived differently. They lived in such a way that, that was so different that it gave us something to wonder about and to look at. And so I'll conclude with the reading of this passage, this, this bigger idea. It's in Acts chapter 8, the last chapter, where it says that, you know, the message is preached into all the world and, and people hear it, but they don't listen to it. And it says this, it says, Acts 28, starting in verse 25, says, the Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be seeing, seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears as, as they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. And so let's pray this morning. God, as we consider this verse, God, we hope that, that you might give us this understanding and that we wouldn't avoid you or somehow close our eyes close our ears off to you. But God, we want our eyes and ears to be open to the things of you, even if those things are different from what our culture tells us is okay. God, we want to open our hearts, not just our minds, to you, to your ways, and radically conform ourselves to you and to understand what it truly means to be called by you, to be a Christian, even if that is so radically different than what the culture says that, that our lives should look like. God, we look to you. We praise you, Jesus. We know that you have the power to convert us, to change us, to, to make us live according to your ways. So we praise you this morning. And everybody said, amen. All right, friends, peace out. We'll see you next week as our, we'll conclude the book of Acts. See you then.